With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to season nine of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I am really excited to have tennis coach and tennis dad, Heath Waters, and his son, Heath Paul, on the podcast this week. We are going to be talking about their summer adventure, which sounds amazing and sounds like something I wish I could have done when I was 14 years old, but um, I'm going to let them tell you the stories. But suffice it to say that they had an amazing summer during the COVID shutdown that was going on in the U.S. They decided to pack up their bags and head across the pond and see what was available in Europe for the summer for junior tennis players. And they found some amazing opportunities. I don't want to give a spoiler alert, a spoiler alert but uh, I'll bring them on in just a sec. Meanwhile, we are nearing the end of the French Open this year, and it has been a crazy French Open for sure. We are at the semis as we're recording this, and uh, I'm really excited to see what's going on. The junior event is in full swing. Uh, the American juniors didn't do so great in the singles. We've still got a couple in the doubles, so hopefully they'll keep pushing their way through to the end of the week and uh, come home with some hardware. That'd be really fun. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Heath and his son, Heath Paul Waters. Hey, guys. Welcome hey. to the podcast. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you so much for having Thank us. We, we look forward to... Uh, telling you about our journey. Well, I'm excited to hear about it. I want to make sure that our listeners know that if they would like to watch the video version of this interview, they can go over to the Parenting Aces YouTube channel and it'll be up on our channel for anybody that wants to see the video. But meanwhile, we'll plug along with the, the audio piece as well. So I, I kind of teased uh, the topic today by saying that you guys packed up and went overseas this summer. Tell us what and why and where you went in Europe. I mean, what a cool adventure for a father and son to have. Well, just to clarify, it actually was last fall. We didn't get that out in front. Ah, okay. So uh, to be honest with you, uh, our objective, our mission was uh, he had turned 13. He was 13 years old. And when you turn 13, uh, you can start playing ITF events. He finished as a 12-year-old top 10 in the country in the boys' 12. And so, you know, we, we wanted to kind of expose him. Our mission was to try to get him private one-on-one -on -one sessions with only coaches who had developed Grand Slam champions from the ground up. That was kind of the mission. Uh, you know, his mom was a player uh, and coaching for many years, and we just wanted him to kind of feel and experience 
what it felt like if it was possible to make that happen. And then number two was 13, you can start playing ITF. So we wanted to get him exposed if possible to playing his first ITF junior events of which is, you know, you got to start somewhere and, and we wanted to right. kind of get him uh, desensitized at a young age. Got it. And Heath, Paul, I- what was going through your head as your parents were saying, hey, we're going to take you to Europe and you're going to train with these amazing coaches who I'm sure whether or not you had heard the coaches names, you certainly knew the players that they had worked with. Right. Um, I was so excited just to go to Europe and have the opportunity, like super blessed and like super nervous. But it was, it was <laughs> yeah, it was super awesome. I mean, yeah, it was so fun. So, And Heath, what did you think that Heath Paul was going to get out of this that you and Lindsay couldn't give him as coaches yourselves here in the States? Well, is is not so much that as it was, uh, well, we couldn't give him the environment. And what we mean by that, number one, he never played on red clay. That was a big part of it. Uh, number two, um, just being in the European culture is quite different, you know, uh, but come to find out there's a lot of similarities of which we'll talk about. But, uh, you know, for us, it, uh, you know, we wanted to, we were at a point, excuse me, we were at a point in, in our uh, life that we wanted to really give him this opportunity if we needed to get up and uproot and move because he was really passionate about the sport like me and his mom. And, um, has some pretty lofty goals that he stated and we were ready to move wherever he could pursue that we were we we were had the ability to do that so if it was at, at Rafa's or if it was at Marata Glues or Brigueras or any place that we went that had some of the world-class players and, and coaches if we felt that that was the place for him that would uh, nourish his game that's where we would have gone. And so we got to experience all that. And, um, and we'll tell you the story. It was really neat. I'm going to let you tell those stories in one second, but I do want to ask you, because this comes up a lot when I'm speaking with parents, how did you know, or what did you see in Heath Paul that made you feel like it was worth this type of investment, this type of disruption, if you will, to your day-to-day life. Um, because everybody thinks their kid is a superstar, right? We, you know, and coming from the perspective of understanding that you and Lindsay are both very entrenched in the tennis world, you are experienced coaches and players. Um, what is it that Heath Paul showed you that made you realize that, hey, it's worth doing this? Yeah, it's real simple. Uh, he stated with his mouth and he his actions, he put the effort and time in and said that he wanted to reach his full potential. And I, I believe, uh, you know, as a parent, most parents, you know, uh, look, I've lived my life very fully. And, and now for me, it's his time. We have a daughter who's in college, but she's out of the house and, and, and now it's his time. And so we, you know, I used to have junior programs and other things that I'm still coaching tour players right now, but, but on a part-time basis, because this is his season and we're dedicating it to him because he said that he wanted to pursue it. And most people, uh, fortunately, his mom was top 50 in the world on the tour and I 
my guys have beaten top 10 players on the tour and grand slams and things like that. So I've been coaching with ATP and WTA for a long time. So we've been around it quite a bit in our lives. And we, we, we have the, the, uh, benefit of seeing what it takes it takes a pretty strong effort right. commitment you can't go halfway and and so for us to be honest with you the things that it, it's a lifestyle we love the sport we love and, and we're we love making memories to us it's about we love traveling we love the culture we love the environment we're we're, we're, out, we're in a hotel right now uh, and it, 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 it's a really cool place and so we're in between tournaments but we love meeting new people, new cultures. So to us, it was a lifestyle choice, but really pursuing excellence in the life lessons alone. This is what is so neat. The time management that he is Mm -hmm. learning, the self-discipline, how to overcome every type of adversity that's ever thrown at you as a human being. Uh, All of these skills that are going to serve him in his future life it's a wonderful way to learn it through the sport of tennis, whether he reaches what he says as his goals, which are very high uh, or not. It really doesn't matter to us. To us, it's the journey and the pursuit of it that is so exhilarating and just the fun and doing it all as a family, a family sure. unit. I mean, we, we don't really enjoy the nine to five job. We love exercising and playing sports and working out and, and going to cool places and having fun and uh, trying to work the hardest at it. So, yeah. And growing beards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's for the winter. I'm shaving it again. Uh, you know, after the winter here. Uh huh. The ZZ Top look. I love it. Okay. So, Heath Paul, I want to hear from you. What is your goal with your tennis? Um, right now, my goal. Uh, I want to be top hundred ATP by seventeen, and then my dream goal. Yes, man. Uh, my dream goal is I want to win the most Grand Slams of all time. I so love that. Those are my life goals for tennis. And what do you think you need to do to achieve those goals? Um, I feel like what I learned from Europe was every day. Like every day you have to go out there, give it your all. You can't have a day where you had a bad attitude or just just not listening or you just have to be every day. So that's one of the biggest things I've learned in Europe. One thing that keeps coming up a lot, and especially right now with junior tennis really kind of shut down in the States other than UTR events happening here and there, is this whole kind of obsession with ratings and rankings. I would love to hear from the two of you how you view ratings and rankings. How do they play into decisions that you make about tournaments and training and your scheduling and all of that? And Heath Paul, I'm going to start with you. Um, I feel like I don't really look at rating ratings as much as I used to when I was a kid. Personally, okay, for the record, you're 14, so you're still a kid. He's 14 now. I mean, when I was <laughs> A few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> As a kid. Never mind. Oh. <laughs> but, like, um, I didn't look – I'm starting, like, not to look at ratings because I feel like right now I feel like they just don't matter to me at my, with my goals. But I they do matter, like, if you want to go to college or, you know, but that's my backup plan. Like, that's B. Um, I really – I don't – I haven't looked at ratings as much lately, but – does it motivate you at all? Yeah, it motivates me to get better each and every day. I still want to go up, but I feel like, what do you think? Like, 
I mean, are you picking tournaments based on, you know, I can earn this many points or, you know, there are these, these people with this UTR and if I win, I can bump my UTR. Are you choosing events based on that? Or is it more just, I need to keep improving. So, you know, the best way for me to do that is to play events that are men's opens and, you know. Yeah, so during the, you know, COVID and through the months, I've been playing a lot of money tournaments and just getting, uh, developing my game, trying to play like higher levels. And uh, that's what I've been doing since the COVID, playing UTRs, starting to play just higher levels, like 18s and just so on and so forth. Yeah, I think to, to elaborate, we, we during the, there wasn't a lot of tournaments during the COVID. And right. So he, um, and when we went to Europe last uh, fall, when we went, it uh, he missed a bunch of national tournaments because like he ended top ten in the nation, but then we went straight right after that, or shortly after that, a few months right to Europe and and put us behind the eight ball a little bit. And then the spring, the COVID happens, and so of course he wanted to try to go for top ten in in the nation in the fourteens again. And but through the COVID, in the end, our number one priority is the development, the acquisition of the skills that are going to help him reach his potential and his goals. And so it really doesn't matter that tournaments it is more, you know, will go as fast as he can go or as slow as he wants to go. You know, so if he, you heard his goals are pretty high. And, and the reason that, uh, how did you come, why, why did you, why do you, why do you want to reach that goal? Why do you say that 17 to ATP? Because he used to say 16, but now he said since the COVID, for whatever reason he said this the other day, that it, it's moved to 17 because he hasn't had a chance. Why, um, but why do you say that? I just I'm seeing all these other guys. I Rafa's like especially one of my like I, like inspirations. He's, I knew he's, I liked you, Heath Paul. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's inspired me. So I just want to I want to be there as early as possible if I can, and just be ready for the future. Like Zverev, Shapovalov, all these young guys. You know, we I was there at Wimbledon when Rafa was 16, watching him play, and he was the big talk. Uh, that year coming up as a 16-year-old, and I think he might have got beat by that little that, that kid from Serbia. I can't remember his name, but but he uh, he, he got around 16 as a 16-year-old. And, uh, you know, we we talk about these things to Heath Paul, and, and, and he – we're not asking him to do that. He just does – and so I think for us overall, you know, uh, the players that I've had in the past that have made it to the, to the pro level – they were all, you know, really good at a young age and they were exposed to the highest levels typically at a younger age. You know, there is no one path, that's for sure, you know, and but whatever it is that's going to help develop his game. So what we tried to do is expose him. We try to keep a three to one win loss ratio, but expose him and touch on his highest level and always pushing that envelope. So we'll get him into pro tournaments this year. We'll try to go and play some and just to get his butt whooped, learn to adapt and whatever it is, just to feel what do I need to do to get to that level and and then go back train and try to fill the gaps. And and it, I think, you know, you'll, a lot of people never really give themselves a chance. They stay in their little cocoon and they mm-hmm. don't really, this, you know, every kid that you ask, you know, they'll have a dream of playing pro or being number one in the world or whatever it is. But unless you do at least the minimum of what others before you have done, then it might be a little difficult to to expect to that to be a potential or even possibility reality. So 
we kind of choose tournaments based on like right now in practice he's he's beaten as high as a 12.83 well if you look at the utrs that's higher than even the 16, the number one, two or three, 16 under in the world or close to it. Top three in the 16 unders. And he's beaten 12, six, eights and in different things in, in matches, 11, six, four, I think in the last money tournament, he'd be the kid that played at Georgia tech or used to play at Georgia tech. And he was like 11, six, four, 11, six, eight at the time. And uh, that's it. But for where he was, that was like the second highest win in the 14 and unders, you know, even though he's not the top rated. So we, we typically, you do want to play that like Corey off has a really huge advantage that she's so young. She could mess up for two years. She's going to continue to grow her mind, her game. Uh, I feel like her game's got a lot of work to do, but she's so young. She, if she's if her heart, she does have, if she is, she's got a strong mind. That's probably her biggest asset yeah. is her, uh, to my, in my opinion, her competitive spirit, but game wise, she's got so much time to adapt. She three years. She's 18. You see, right. she's learned so much with facing all of the Grand Slams. The chances of her winning a Grand Slam, whether it's 18 or 22, she could win a lot if she's pragmatic about progressing. And so, the you know, the kind of the younger you, you can get them, in my mind, exposed and so they can have a chance to adapt. You know, I believe that, you know, like you're seeing a lot of like the Bradys and stuff, the college coming out and the Isners. All the ones who come down, all these people that are doing well, Steve Johnson, there's a lot of them. But to me, it is a little more difficult in that avenue to come there because you, you're 22. takes you a few years usually to adapt to the tour. I mean, look, Zebrev, I mean, he was he was hot, but he still had one grand slam, but he's still mentally struggling. And it might take him two or three more years, and but he's still only – he'll be still young 20s where he'll – by 22, he'll be maybe winning grand slams. It's hard because it takes – adaptation time and i think even though it can you know you can do well in the tour very rare for people to come out graduate from college and actually win slams because they didn't have that young exposure a lot of the times i think it's not that it can't be done but it's just harder uh, because you're 20 look it seems like isner hadn't been on the tour that long and he's already 30 years old yeah. because, you know 24 to 26 30 goes quick yeah. boom <laughs> Look, I'm getting old, man. It's six years. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. So, well, let's jump into your Europe tour. So, tell us where you started. You you live in the Atlanta area, so I'm assuming you left from Atlanta Hartsfield Airport. Where did you go first? Yeah, we went to London. We went to London. Mommy, uh, his mommy was playing a trying to play a twenty five thousand dollar event. She was playing for fun a little bit again. And she ended up being one out, but the tournament happened to be held at the uh, National Training Center, the LTA, uh, in Roehampton. And we just got really fortunate that Andy Murray and Kyle Edmund and Daniel Evans, all of them, were training for Davis Cup. And so we were actually practicing on the court right beside them, uh, and, and that ended up being just a really sweet treat uh, because he, Paul, even though he had been to a lot of Grand Slams when he was younger, watching Mommy and my players and stuff like that I was coaching, he really didn't understand it. And now to get to watch Andy Murray and Kyle and all of them straight up in person, uh, that was pretty neat. What did, what did you think? Yeah, super inspirational uh, just to watch, like, Kyle Edmund play. Like, and then Andy Murray, like, they were – it was just fun to watch, like their intensity on the court, how much they're swinging the ball as fast as they can. Just everything they're doing is just, it was super intense. And it was fun to watch. I mean, Andy Murray took like 45 minutes just to like get ready to stretch, which I thought was super professional. I mean, you got to do yeah. that. 
So, yeah, and what was really cool, uh, yeah. we were, we were, you know, he Paul's kind of shy quite often. Well, it depends if he knows you or not. Yeah. Not usually, but anyways, um, Kyle Edmund, after we got done practicing, we were watching Andy Murray, he came up and sat. We were sitting like right here in, a, a, you know, probably 20 feet to the right, and it's overlooking the indoor courts on this balcony. And Kyle Edmund was sitting there, and, and he Paul knew what I was probably going to do because I wanted <laughs> you know, I wanted we all want to learn. And so I wanted to uh, take he Paul and introduce him and just see if he would answer a couple questions for he Paul. I, I said, no, I said, no, I was, <laughs> were you totally embarrassed? So nervous. He said, I was so nervous. I literally was like, I'll, I'll go out the back exit door. Okay. We'll just walk past him. Yeah. And he's like, Hey Kyle, yeah, I like to introduce you to my son. So I was like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> he was the sweetest guy ever." Yeah, he, he was spent so thirty nice. minutes asking nice questions, and and one of the and this is neat for for your audience because one of the takeaways because we try to learn from every uh, pe- uh, every person that we meet and and uh, we asked him one of the big questions. We asked, "Well, what was the difference from your perspective, Kyle, that w- when you were thirteen years old?" And you made it. And there were other people that might not have made it. Uh, and and he gave us some, a really neat answer. And you want to share? Yeah. That? So the kids were just focusing on now. They were trying to focus on winning. You know, just the kids were they were at the top. Kids of were time. at the top at the time. Were just focusing on winning and just trying to get the ball in. Whereas Kyle was trying to work on his game for the future for the pros. He was trying to hit the ball basically. Yeah. And he said those people. You know, he says he said that. I don't see a lot of those people that were top in our country, the UK at that time, uh, because they were just trying to win. And he goes, but the people that you do see that are here with me now, they were focused on developing the game for the future. They might not have been top at 12 years old or 13 or 14 even. He goes, but some of them kept going. This is like that that's Jack, Jack Janik Center. You know, yeah. he, he he's he's gone boom. Well, he was one of those. And so that, I think, really struck a chord knowing that because we talk about that a lot. We, You know, it, no one really remembers the 12s and 14s so much. But if you're acquiring the skills and developing a pro level game, working towards mastery of that, then you have at least a chance to realize your full potential or, or think about it. So that was really neat. It was awesome. Yeah. So that was our England trip. Yeah. OK. And then where? Well, then we headed well, we to. We flew to Mallorca. Mallorca. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. So um, we were on the premise. So, our, again, our objective was to only work with, with uh, coaches that had developed Grand Slam champions. So we wanted to – his dream, his biggest dream of his life was to work with Tony Nadal, yeah, you know, Rafa's coach. And so so we tried to make it happen. We called over, and at first they said, no, uh, he doesn't do that. And so we said, well, we're coming all the way from America, la, la, la. And then we told him – then. We told him, you know, this mom had played and I was an ATP WPA coach and that he was top 10 in the country. And then they said, oh, okay, well, let's see a video. Then when we shared the video, because he plays a little bit differently. He serves lefty-righty. He has two forehands. It's a little bit odd. But for whatever reason, that intrigued them. And once they got the video, we went out and filmed real quick and then sent it that night. And then they said, okay, uh, Tony, Tony will take a look at him and work with him. Because evidently, uh, he, he only – works with Rafa Nadal's what kind of when we got over there they said so we get over there quite interesting yeah yeah so we went over there 
you know, uh, we drove there. It took, I don't know, a long time to get there. But we were practicing the – I think we slept there overnight, and we were practicing on the Rafa Nadal court, which was an honor. Like, Nadal practiced on the same clay court. I, so, I got chills when you said that. that. It was insane. I was going crazy. I was like, oh. It's a little court way in the yeah. back. It evidently is his It was like a little, little stadium court. But so the guy comes up. And me and my mom are hitting, just practicing, just getting a feel. And the guy comes up to my dad, and he's like, oh, is this uh, your son? And he um, Yeah, he's Paul. And uh, he was, like, just talking to him. And what, what did he say to you? Yeah, he said, because uh, he knows the lefty right, and he goes, yeah. he goes uh, well, we look forward and introduce himself. We look forward. And the first thing he said is, oh, you're definitely going to change uh, to a two-handed backhand from the lefty. And we had to go all through that and say, well, no, actually, he, he's not going to do it. And uh, <laughs> we gave reasons. And, and stuff, and he said, "Well, we'll see you tomorrow at two p.m." And I said, "Oh no, well, we're, we're, I think we're coming at 10. And he goes, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, we got a." Pri-. I said, "Well, we got a private lesson with Tony." He goes, "Tony Nadal," and I said, uh, "Yeah." And he goes, "No, no, no, nobody does private lessons one on one with Tony. Only Raphael. Who tell you this?" <laughs> we, right. said, we said, uh, "Well, yeah, the lady who admissions who because you they they you, you have to go you do you talk to there's actually a girl from the UK who was head of their admissions." And she's the one who told us and gave us the itinerary. And he goes, they should have sent you a thing and, and uh, in your email. with the, and, and, and he goes, let me see. And so I showed him the, the itinerary. And sure enough, it said 10 a.m., Tony Nadal. That's it. He goes, oh, no. And he, and he immediately got the phone and started calling, Tony, <laughs> you have a lesson with uh, this American kid. He pulled it. <laughs> and, and, he goes, and, he's, and he's sitting there because he's got this big engagement tomorrow. And evidently, he wasn't. So what happened was, in reality, He's the director of the Academy, and evidently he saw the video. And so Tony never even saw the video, no. evidently. And so he says, sorry, you know, uh, he's got a big engagement, and he's, you know, only worked with Raphael and uh, uh, Rafa, and I don't know, you know, who tell you these, but I apologize. And I said, okay, and we said we'd make the best of it. Yeah, we're like, uh, we were just saying, uh, we're just going to go out there, just play yeah. tennis. And he said, actually, he would come out for like five minutes. Yeah, he said he might stop by after five minutes. Because he had some big event going on there, so yeah. – um, so we woke up the next morning and then uh, 2 p.m. I was super nervous because I, he was coming out like for five minutes. I was still nervous <laughs> with all these guys. And uh, one thing that like struck me before I went on the court was I don't know if uh, you've seen the movie Rudy, but my mom was yes, like, for yeah, sure. so that's like my favorite movie of all time. But my mom's like, OK, no matter what, just go out there and be Rudy. So I was just. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's, that's how. Yeah, that's good. So then, what you know, I'm sitting about 100 yards away. Mom's really nervous. She's sitting 500 yards away because in case he came in, in he Paul, they, they put five courts here. They have kids on the courts with a coach on each court, and he Paul's playing with one of their top players on the very end, evidently. And they're just warming up, and sure enough, Tony Nadal comes strolling down. And I and, saw him with my peripheral, and I was. <laughs> I was like, oh, don't come on my court, but please do it. Yeah. So he ended up, he came on to the first court. He's talking to the coach and watching for a second. And, well, for whatever reason, when he, Paul, heard that his mom say, you know, be like Rudy, I don't know. But she, uh, he just, for whatever reason, if the ball went in the net, he would sprint to the net and get his sprint back. If the ball went in the fence, he would sprint and get just kind of like, just odd, you know, that no one is no the one has that on all five, five courts, running after every ball when they're out and it's just on the fence. Anyways, Tony, I think what happened, and, and Tony came on that first court, he pulls running, sprinting to the ball, and sprinting. And, I, and Lindsay's way far away, and I text Lindsay, I said, but I told, I noticed Tony looking like that, like like that. And I said, Lindsay, I think he Paul caught Tony Nadal's eye. 
And and I said, I think he thinks he Paul is crazy. You know, because he's a fool, you know, it's like, who is this fool out here running like that? Just you know, just like crazy. Anyway, so he worked his way all the way down. And then he gets, you know, about takes about five, six, seven minutes, and he get talking to each coach as he's going on all the course and and then sits right on he Paul's bench and just watches. He just, just watches. Doesn't, doesn't say, say a word, word for like. He speaks Spanish. So I can't speak Spanish. Or he speaks English. Yeah, too. and he speaks English as well. But um, he was just speaking Spanish to the other coaches. But he didn't talk to me for like ten minutes. He was just observing, and yeah. I was so nervous for like I was like, <gasps> come about those first four balls. Yeah, yeah, the first four balls hit the back of the fence in the air. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was kind of cool. But then what was really neat is uh, he Paul. He asked. He goes. Play and, and, and he, he played and, and he Paul just in a ground game and took the guy out pretty good. But evidently this was their top guy or something. And uh, then he brought he Paul in and, and asked him how old was. Now he was only thirteen at the time and he's born in two thousand six. And so he he said, uh, you know, how old are you? And when he brought him in and he goes thirteen. Uh, he goes no no no. You, you, what year are you born? Two thousand six. And he goes and then he goes two thousand six two thousand because you know he Paul was pretty heavy off both sides and he was a little square at that time and. Uh, Anyway, that I guess he thought that was pretty cool because I think the two heavy forehands, because it's similar to Rafa, but he's got two of them instead of just one, I think intrigued him. And then uh, he Paul, uh, he said play again. He beat that guy. Then he brought another guy over, and that guy was a little dejected and brought another guy over. But then he sent somebody out to get me. And I was all about, hey, where his parents? Uh, could he go get his, his coach or his parent bring him here? And he brought me in. And, and uh, this is after he had beaten a couple of his top guys, just in points and stuff, not, not full matches or anything. And he said, which was pretty encouraging, in, but but really interesting for for your crowd and your parents that are hearing this, and the coaches, you know, was you know comes from Tony. I'm gonna We took it to heart. And he said this. He goes, and and he it, what he ended up doing was bringing the players and to watch the, their them play after he Paul played you know played in the first one. He brought everybody in because he Paul's effort was really on this day. He always gives really strong effort. But that Rudy thing, I don't know. He really was still just running everywhere, which is just just weird. And they were watching his feet and he was pointing at him and he was talking to the players and all that. And and then he brought the next one and he said to me, after all those kids left, the coaches left and he brought me in and one of the coach was still there. And he said because he asked he Paul what his goals were, and he told him what he told you. And I'm thinking, yeah. you don't tell that for Tony Nadal. No, he was like, oh, wow, big goal. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and he says, you know, I see you see all these kids because his effort. He goes, I have not seen this effort and attitude since my nephew turned 20 years ago. He wow. goes, which I, and, and, and I talk a lot, and, and, I, and I didn't say where, and I'm like, whoa. But then he said right after that, though, he goes, he goes, but it doesn't matter because he's not five for five. Because he's not what? Five for five. Ah. And he goes, to win one Grand Slam, very difficult. But he's not five for five. He's maybe one for five, two for five, but he's not for five, five for five. I don't see this possible. Huh? And five for five is basically every ball that you hit, you want it bouncing and, like, jumping over your opponent's head. Like, you want it, like, the trajectory to go so fast with so much spin. Yeah, so what you meant by that is – Raphael's intention is not just to put the ball to a target, not to just put it into play. He goes to win Grand Slams. You have to have, you have to have something special. The ball needs to hit in the, with the intention to hurt your opponent, to explode. And that's what we got out of that. And then what was really neat is he took the next three hours and spent one-on-one with him, teaching him what that felt like and looked like and to experience that. And what did you feel with that? 
Um, it was incredible. It was probably one of the highlights of my life, probably. Yeah. And so, and we were supposed to go back in February. They did take a little interest and it was really neat and, and, uh, but we couldn't because of the pandemic and stuff. And so, uh, you know, so that was a, that was just a really enlightening, but, but to hold on to that. And then he spent 45 minutes after that talking, telling about stories about Raphael and how Djokovic and Federer and just all his, the way he get basically just pouring himself out was really just exceptional. You know, one of, you know, and, and I'll, I want to, you know, tell you after the next story, uh, one of the differences in how, what our conclusion was, but it's definitely a difference between Grand Slam level coaches and most of the coaching in the world. And we'll tell you what that is in a few minutes. And I just, Heath Paul, I want to just ask you, I mean, obviously, you know, getting to meet and talk to Tony Nadal and have him watch you play and give you information based on watching you play is unbelievable. But what did you do with that when you came back home? Like how, because I think it's one thing to go to these places and have these incredible experiences, but then you have to figure out how to translate what you've learned into your day-to-day training once you're back in the real world, right? Right, right. Um, For me, like I'm, um, I after I was done working with him, I wrote down everything he said, and I just like took it to heart. And I, I would just, I mean, when I got back to Europe, it was more of like sometimes I like relaxed, but I, then I said to myself, I can't be wasting my time. Like I, I every day, like he told me every day, like I have to do this. Tell about that Denmark kid. What he said about one day when that kid came off. Yeah. And so, so I was playing this kid, and he was having a poor attitude. All, on the court and he was talking about that one day out of the month that you have an attitude like this or effort uh you could be top 100 but if you have more than uh one of, of that bad attitude you'll never make it like you'll never make it on tour like he probably played this kid in in in, in one and the kid came off crying and the coach brought him over to ask tony his advice mm-hmm. and he said that he said look one day like these maybe never make the top 100. Two days and 30 in one month, you have no chance. He said this. So, so that's, that, pretty, that's pretty harsh. That is, well, that, Especially that, for a kid, right? Yeah, so so that attitude, the attitude is everything. And, and the attitude, a growth mindset, you know, working towards that mastery and not having negativity, negative energy, you know, you're wasting time there's problem focus and there's solution focus. Be solution focused because problems can't help you yeah. <laughs> except what to do next, right? Sure. So that's kind of, we reference that a lot. Well, we use Tony a lot in our house these days now. And the others. And so, so, yeah. so you, I mean, this is incredible. You, you get to work with Tony Nadal. I can't imagine going from there I mean, that's the pinnacle, right? right. <laughs> but you still had time in, in Spain and in Europe. So where did you head next after the Nadal? Uh, we headed to Draw Three Portos, which was in Palma. And okay. when I got there, I was also nervous uh, with that still. Um, cause and here's a picture of you and Joffrey. <laughs> Joffrey. Yeah, when I got there, you know, he was just super intense. Like, right when I got there, he was like, uh, when we were hitting, because uh, we did for, private lessons, yeah, we, we, we did one. Our objective was one on one. If we couldn't get one on one, you can get good hitting anywhere. We wanted to get the 
knowledge and the, the download of transfer of information so he could absorb and learn and, and us too. Yeah. And let me let me just interject too, really quickly um, for our listeners. Joffrey Porta is at Global Team Tennis, Global Tennis Team, Global. Mm-hmm. I always say it backwards um, in Mallorca, and that's where my son spent a month training when he was in the juniors. And so we have we have personal experience, and I took a lesson there too. Oh, and with Joffrey, okay. but, and yeah. he's, he used to work with Moya, Carlos Moya, who was number one in the World Grand Slam from right. coaching him in a little bit. And who's coaching Rafa, Rafa now, right? And, and, and Rafa, he worked with a little bit as well. Right? Yeah. Right. Well, well, tell him about so, his intensity. Yeah, his intensity was probably super high. So, like, when I was doing this little drill, and he, I couldn't really understand him because he had a little accent a little bit. Yeah, a, lot a, a lot of accent. A lot of accent. So like he wants me to go. He wanted me to go around the cone, just through it, and I I couldn't understand what he was saying. So he was like yelling at me. He was like, "No, no, go around the cone. What are you doing? What are you doing?" He was literally yelling at me. Like he was like done with me for a second. Like I'm like I'm sorry. And he Paul trying his hardest, but he didn't understand, and it was so hilarious because he's sitting there fumbling and trying his hardest, and and he's getting frustrated because the language barrier. But eventually. But eventually, I, I I got it. So he accidentally got I it. accidentally got it. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things that like struck me was, um, like he was super intense. But also, like the first hour we were in, he was like, I don't allow. Like he has benches on the side. He's like, I don't allow my players to sit at all. We don't I was just getting ready to say that. So <laughs> no, yeah. I had a lesson there. I'm 50 <laughs> years old, right? Never been on the red clay ever. 10 minutes into my lesson, I am dying just from trying not to fall on my backside, right? So I go over to, I said, I need a break. I go over to the side. I start to sit down and drink my water. And it wasn't Joffrey giving me my lesson, but the coach who was teaching me said, oh, you don't get to sit down and have water. He says, are you number one in the world? I said, no. He says, only number one in the world gets to sit down and have a break. I was like, oh, my God. Oh yeah. Then what about the ball? You only allow one ball. Oh yeah, you only have one ball. So if you miss, you sprint to the net, you go yeah. back, you hit it, and you're like if you have to sprint everywhere. So it's I was dying. Like I was in good it's shape. It's exhausting. It's a new level as well. Yeah. Well, that clay. I mean, you were in pretty good shape, but but being in clay shape and yeah, yeah, dirt and it was it was it and was it's a great totally experience. different movement on mm-hmm. the red clay, even than playing on the green stuff that we have here in the states. Um, yeah. I found that red clay so slippery and so difficult to stop and change direction. That was I, that was the thing in my lesson. I had two objectives. One was to work on my serve, and two was to eliminate the twelve extra steps after I hit the shot before I started running the other way. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that I think that was a very fruitful experience. And and again, that was another coach who had developed uh, Grand Slam level players. Then we went from there to uh, Barcelona. Barcelona with Luis Bruguera. And he. All right, so we have a picture. Wait, hang on. I'm. I'm okay. Keep talking. I'm going to get. The yeah, picture. no, Luis. That was number one. It was a beautiful setting on the side of a mountain overlooking Barcelona. The red clay, just gorgeous. And that's Luis. So you can see the intensity there. He's got the. They made a wonderful connection. We really, really enjoyed. Really Again, enjoyed. he he did two or three hours a day for several days with Luis and and made an instant connection and. And they wanted him to come there really bad. And it was, it was, you know, just a wonderful experience. But what would you say, you know, uh, as far as, 
because we did go to Marat Blues after this, but we didn't get to work one on one with with Patrick. He doesn't do that. Right. So these were the the four primary, three primary ones that we got exposed to. What would you say, Paul, from all of that? Those coaches is is, is a commonality that that rung true. So probably like one is intensity on every ball. Like they want they want every ball to have just spin as fast as you can. They want you yeah. just every ball is intensity, concentration, and then swing as fast as you can heavy. So like those are the two things, concentration and every ball. They were just intense. Like all of them like yeah. were intense yelling yelling at me, but it was it wasn't like yelling. It was more of a what do you think it was? Like a, intensity, they're yeah. passionate. They're urging you, passionate. urging you on. Yeah, they're 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 passionate and they're trying to light your fire. And right. and I, you know, for me, that was probably the, the biggest thing as well was that mm-hmm. you have coaches all around the world, but the coaches that have developed Grand Slam champions, they're every ball coaches, meaning they're perfectionists. They do they don't let you do ten poor repetitions. They want every repetition to be perfect and they are determined. And one thing that we discovered with Europe is every single place that went Marata Blues included, which they had the top ranked boys, the that last three number ones and Sisipas is out of there, Djokovic and 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 uh, Holger, all these are coming out of there. Uh, you do not leave there without a heavy ball. Everybody, people already had a heavy ball, but it took it, it helped it go to another level, that's for sure. Every that's probably the most uh, common thing that was between every coach, every location, every academy. They you're required to hit a heavy ball. There is no exception. You will be you will leave there with a heavy ball. And then, you know, uh, and then they're, they're pretty intense. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, looking at American academies opposed or compared to European academies, still the same thing. Now, what do we mean by that? You still have. Uh, the, the majority, what I saw anyways, you know, they have a couple, few good players, creams up here, and then you got these supporting groups. Uh, but you still have some of the kids that maybe might want to be there, might not want to be there. We saw a lot of interesting things. Yeah. Um, but overall, the coaching in general from those coaches, but those coaches, I don't believe we would have moved there if he could have worked every day with Rafa. Mm-hmm. We might have done that. Uh, or Luis, Luis offered that. But here's the other one of the reasons we didn't move there. Number one is the psychological part is the most important part to us, the mental game, and we have a system for that. And and that is uh, the mental reps are the most important for us. It's anybody can hit four inches and back ends all day. You can hit thousands of balls and do this and that. But you know, shoring up your weaknesses and honing your skills every repetition mental repetitions, how you respond to adversity, how you respond to errors, that has to be conditioned and shaped as well. To mm-hmm. We call it a champion's mindset. That They do have some sports psychologists there, but they weren't on the court with them every single day reinforcing and shaping behavior. They would come once a month. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, And that's why there were kids crying there and doing this and that and throwing rackets. We saw a little bit of all this stuff. Not, not that happens everywhere, but sure. except – you know, when, when you know, for the people that you know, Rafa is one of the few that uh, that has, to me, probably the best attitude of all time. With, Amazing, yeah. And I wish all kids would would take from him. Right. Where Djokovic, he threw that racket. That's great, but he's opened the door even with saying, "Well, I can't promise. I'm trying my hardest, but I can't promise it won't happen again." Well, that means it's going to happen again because right. Rafa is, has non-negotiables, and he's he's he has a negotiable there, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so and it. And so anyway, bottom line, 
uh, I think uh, out of the whole experience, our biggest takeaway is we will go back really because when they have the ITF events there and we will go to these places to train uh, to prep for the ITF events. But we decided not to move there simply because even though it was a tremendous experience and we gained a lot and we're going to continue to gain the little details uh, from the holistic uh, environment wasn't necessarily there, but from the Grand Slam coaches, it was. Yeah. But they're not involved fully every single day. I mean, right. I'm sure Luis was with 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 his son Sergio, who won the '94 '95 French Open. Obviously, Tony was with, but they're doing many other things. Rafa's got ten academies now, and he's doing speaking engagements and all that. And that's not where he is in his life right now. So. Got it. Let me ask you this, because I remember when my son was at Global with Joffrey, and one of the things that was so kind of eye-opening to him was the fact that the on-court sessions were 90 minutes. They were 90 minutes of nonstop intensity, as you were talking about, but it was only 90 minutes. So they would go on court, they would work till they puked, basically, and then they would have a break, whether it was a meal break or they would be working on something off court fitness or the mental side or just going exploring and kind of having some downtime. And then they would come back for a second session in the afternoon, another 90 minute intense session. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all day on the court hitting tennis balls like we see a lot of times here. Mm-hmm. Um was that your experience too, Heath Paul, that, you know, that it was shorter, but way more intense time on the court? Right. It was like that. So, yeah, I did a lesson with uh, Joffrey Porta for an hour and a half, as you said, in an afternoon session as well. Like for me, when we're at home, like we just do light and intense sessions, like nothing that kills your body. Mm-hmm. We're already in that kind of that uh, frame of mind prior to visiting. We started him at we kind of kind of a tiered process. We started him at eight years old. We started four four hours a day. That's when he started his first regular training. Was at eight four hours a day, uh, four days a week, and then he would play terms and take the weekend off. And then at ten years old, he went to three hours a day. At twelve years old, he's down to two hours a day physical on the court. Uh, because at the beginning, you need to you have a lot more to learn. So the first couple of years is a lot of technical development, footwork, all this. And then as you know, but as you grow older, you want to more to us, more mental and physical once you move towards mastery, but shorter, sweet, intense, very productive with purpose. Also save the body as well. And save the body. I mean, we, we do a little bit. We don't even... We don't practice before I play. Like a tournament, I don't practice before I play. I just stretch. We don't, we don't warm up for matches. And his right. last 15 titles, he hasn't warmed up for a match on the court. He's warmed up his – he does visualization, body. mental stuff, and, and the body getting it ready, but he doesn't actually hit ball. That's a little bit Interesting. And why did you go to that model of, you know, no on-court hitting before a match, but rather just the stretching and – Maybe mm-hmm. some meditation or been yeah, it's a great question. You know, for years, uh, you know, I started coaching on the tour in '98, and a lot of players. And uh, uh, what I started observing over time was that sometimes a player would go out and uh, it's really strange and have a really poor warm up, but then they play great. Mm-hmm. And then I saw quite often they would have a couldn't miss a shot in warm up, then play horrible. So what I saw was the, the mental stress that that caused, number one, because it, was a, it wasn't a true uh, 
uh, uh, tell of what was going to happen in the match, number one. Sure. In the way that, but really, if you're thinking the way I look at it, I'm always trying to think big picture, 50,000 foot view. If you got seven, if you're looking at a Grand Slam, you got, you know, seven matches over the course of two weeks. Mm-hmm. Think of how many extra hours of wear and tear. If you now look, if he's, we do go on the court once in a while. If there's a technical something that could lead to an injury, or if his tactical mindset, he's lost a little of of that. We just do it for five or seven minutes just to recreate the tactical mindset in, to, for feelings. But, you know, some of these guys will go out there and hit for two hours right. twice a day, even, you know, during the tournament. Well, you think of the wear and tear, the mental stress and the physical stress over a two-week period. Now multiply that by 20 years. Because at years of your career, the more than that, your body, if you don't have it down before you show up, you ain't going to be down five minutes. You've been practicing your whole life, you know, and, and, and you know, and that's what I see uh, is so many people. The people are followers, number one. They, 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 they don't necessarily challenge the status quo. How could we do it better? What could we what could we do to make it more efficient in, 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 in that kind of question? I ask quite a bit with everything. And so how do you feel? What do you feel when you don't? Is it helped hurt? What do you think? I feel like it's helped like mentally, like quick learning because. I don't know why. Just sometimes before I play, I don't like seeing where I'm at until I like have that three minute warm up. Like my warm up, I feel is like before I play. Like you know the three minute warm up, warm up mm-hmm. or five minute warm up, whatever. That's once my you're way. on the court, you mean with oh, your opponent? Right, right, with my opponent. And then I also I just I feel like I'm better mentally, stronger, and then I'm also saving my body as well. So that's interesting. And I mean, you guys have a unique situation. Let's let's be honest. I mean. First of all, your father, son. So there's a level of trust between you as coach and player that is very different from, let's say, Heath Paul. You you had some other coach that you you know it's not your dad and that you don't have that relationship with. So I think you know that first and foremost, having that level of trust between the two of you is so important, and it's something. I, I talk about a lot um, how important that is for the coach to be able to establish that trust level and for the parents and the players to be able to have that trust in the coach. It goes both ways. Right. But also, Heath, I mean, you have, you know, now decades of experience coaching and you bring all of that experience and all the changes that you've seen over that time period to the table when working with Heath Paul, which is amazing too. And like you said, you're you're a person who challenges the status quo. Um, we haven't brought this up yet, but you are you you Lindsay and your brother Matt are the minds behind the Match Tennis app, and that was all born out of seeing shortfalls in the junior development landscape and things tools that didn't exist that needed to be created and you guys created them so this is just part and parcel of who you are as a family you look for the gaps and you figure out a way to fill them and not just fill them but fill them and really move the game to the next level and i think that's so cool um and i want to just kind of use this as a segue because when Heath, when you and Matt were on our Tennis Takeaway show with Dewey Evans a couple weeks ago, you were there to talk about Match Tennis app and these new developments that y'all have added. And before we finish our hour, I want to just give you a chance to talk about the new 
features that are involved there and kind of how those came to be. Yeah, I mean, same same kind of thing as, as the development. Um, you know, we how could things be better for our experience? How can we increase the quality of our experience as consumers? But also, how could we increase synergistically for tournament directors, coaches, parents, uh, everybody that's involved in participation of a tournament and tournament production? And that, to us, uh, uh, is a question we ask all the time because we want to enjoy it ourselves. We're actually in the trenches living yep. the real life. We've lived every area of it, from a coach, from a tournament director, to players, to to uh, the parents. And so um, we wanted to, for to be, you know, I'm kind of the guy that if I go to a movie and it impacts me, I like sharing it with the next person. Oh, you got to go watch that movie, man. Oh, it's so awesome, dude. You know, kind of that kind of person. And so we, we, you know, this all was, was birthed out of Lindsay. You know, he was top 50 in the world and she had played the junior scene and gone through the USTA and tournaments and all that and her parents. And, and, and then she did it as a parent, the coach, all this. So uh, it, it is how it was created because she was experiencing pain. So there has to be a better way. Well, that's how Match Tennis App was created, so we could experience tournaments more uh, happily and more enjoyable. So what we've come up recently, our newest little thing here that we're excited about, we hope it to be revolutionary, kind of a game changer for tournament production. So think of this, you, you, you actually, so the tournament directors um, uh, are sitting in behind a, 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 like a Wizard of Oz kind of thing. They're in the back room and they got the matches and the players, instead of always having to come up and ask what court am I on, how many courts am I down, uh, who, where is my friend playing and all this, we're trying to make it where it's transparent both ways. So the communication between the tournament staff and the end user, the players, are uh, extremely efficient. We've created uh, what we call a virtual tournament desk that actually we've just made it happen to where it actually runs the whole tournament for a tournament director and does all the communications, everything. It's automated. They push automate. And as a per, as a player, so a player will receive a court assignment and they'll report to court 20 from the comfort of their car. They could be watching a friend, whatever, but they don't have to go and wait in the line to ask you know, what court am I going to be on or whatever? It just comes to them. So, and with the pandemic, I mean, the timing is perfect, right? Yeah, this, the is there. Yeah, this is, this would be post pandemic. So what happens is the whole goal is put those minutes back into the parents' pockets and the players and the TDs, right? The staff, everybody, right. give them back their life and their time so they can spend more time doing what they want. And so the, so you, they get this with the virtual tournament, they get the court assignments, they report to the court, they play their match and they were, and after the match, instead of having to go again, wait in line, they report their score. Now what's cool is as soon as the, as soon as you report the score through the app or th then what it goes into the tournament director system and reports it right to the draw. Yeah. And so now instantaneously as you report it, you're getting to see who you play next. And now, and then what's cool is you have a waiting list. So the waiting list, previously, you asked, how many courts am I down was one of the number one questions that a kid asked. <laughs> yeah. Playing at, at the 9.30 matches are on, and you're waiting for your 11 o'clock match. Right. And court open. Well, it has 20 people. It tells you, and it shows you dynamically moving from 20 to 19. You're the 18th. But when it gets to top three of the next on, uh, your, your third court open, you get a text message saying, hey, stick around. But it also allows a parent to go, Oh, I'm 19th. I can go get a Chick Fil A real quick in, in the salad or whatever. Yeah. Or you, hey, my kid's hungry. Mind you, get something. Do I have time to go get that? Or a coach? Yeah. Do you know where you are? It's transparent instead of having to guess. And so it just our hope is 
like the virtual tournament desk, this here will will make it so much easier for the tournament uh, directors, but also for the consumer. They'll be able to see where their friends are. Eventually, hopefully, we have live scoring and AI technology doing all kinds of stats. All this kind of stuff will cool. be coming soon. But um, we hopefully, do, from the bottom, uh, just like Chick-fil-A, speaking of them, they improved their business model 54% just from their 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 drive-through. Right. Yeah. From having the technologies in the system, you go there at, tw- at 12 o'clock lunchtime during rush hour and they actually maybe have 100 cars, but you know, you're going to get through there in seven minutes. But if you go to a Starbucks, they're hit or miss. Maybe you get through in seven minutes, but maybe you have to turn around after yeah. 20 minutes and leave. Well, more people will go to Chick-fil-A because of the experience and they, they can count on it and it's enjoyable. Even if it's kind of crazy and hectic, it's still enjoyable and they can count on that experience. And more people, they've increased business. We look at that as bringing more people into the game if we can make it better for the consumer. And for the more people run tournaments as tournament directors because it's easy. More people play tournaments because it's easy. And the word is spread. And kind of that's our goal with that. Um, and you also have another new piece, which I learned about on our Tennis Takeaways conversation, which is kind of a planning piece. So, for example, if Heath Paul says, I want to be number one in the 18s nationally by the end of the year, it will, your app will help you figure out which tournaments you need to be playing in order to earn the ranking points to get to that goal, which I, I wish to God that had been around when, you know, that's again, our heart wants to educate again, to help the parents. These are things that parents have never been uh, provided. And we've created technology with algorithms and stuff that will spit out. If you want to be number one in the nation, the 18s, maybe by the end of the year, but maybe by the spring or something like that, because there's no national term. So we couldn't do that, but it will actually spit out the exact pathway with the tournaments that would, because it's not going to give you terms that won't give you national points. Mm -hmm. If you say sectional or state ranking or national ranking, it's going to give you the exact tournaments, tell you what your points are, what you need to average, and then show you the tournaments that you can add to your calendar that you can play and create a pathway that will allow you to even achieve that goal because most parents don't know what to do don't know when right. to do what and what to do when they play the same tournaments every year year in or out and they never even reach a goal because they didn't know what to do and so well and everything's changing in january with usta mm-hmm. we know that we've got the new seven level system coming out January 1. So I want to encourage the junior tennis parents out there and the junior tennis coaches, because y'all need to be educated too. Um, We posted recently a webinar that was done by the USTA Midwest section on the changes, and they really walked through the different levels and what what this is going to mean for junior families and all that. So um, make sure you know what's coming in January, because it's coming. That's right. The level one. So we, we think it's going to be a good thing. And, and we're actually, you know, going to take it's going to make it much easier on what we're providing educational wise because everything would be congruent because it was a little difficult with Texas. Yeah. And California. Everybody has different requirements now. They all be the same. But one of probably our other most exciting features that we love is, you know, in our system, because we have almost half the United States in our system already because we're so many tournaments, we're at every tournament just about, and yeah. not, not every one of them, but 80% or so in the United States. And so if you need someone to practice with, if you need someone to play, you can go into our system. And we now, because we have so many in our system, it's very relevant. You can just send a message in, in search by players that you might want to get a matchup with by 10 mile radius of your zip code. 
uh, with, with the UTR, a USTA ranking, a tennis recruiting ranking, whatever your heart's desire, whatever you're looking for that meets your needs, you can find people to play with in your zip code that has never been done before like this right. that are actually tournament players playing junior tournaments just like you. And so we're excited about that connection. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so we're we're coming to the end of our hour. Everything always goes so quickly when it's involving you, Heath Waters. Um, I don't know what that's about, but <laughs> uh, Heath Paul, what is next on your calendar? Um, next on my calendar, uh, you mean tournament wise or tournament training travel? What's what's coming? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I'm gonna start playing some ITF juniors. There's supposed to be, I think, three. Uh, one in Atlanta, Orlando, and then Del Rey. Yeah, so that'll be exciting to play those. He's gonna try to. I'm get gonna in try to get in. He's gonna try. Yeah. that's the goal. So that's that's next on the calendar, and then some pro events like you were saying earlier. So that it's gonna be so fun. It's well, a I, choice, yeah, to decide to go that route, and because you, you gotta sacrifice somewhere. Yeah. So for development, we might just sacrifice his 14s, his 16s, and all right. that, and kind of we're making a decision to go 18s and ITFs and pro, and kind of because he's young, that's kind of the direction we're going. Yeah. I I meant to ask you this when you were talking, and it left my brain, and now it's back again. So I want to make sure I get the question out before we close. Being 14 and playing in these events where you're competing against guys who are 18, 19 and older. So have gone through puberty, have man bodies, have the strength of full grown men. How do you manage your own injury prevention and health when you're coming up against these players that have the strength and and the muscle development, you know, that you're still developing? Right, right. So I work out like two hours, um, five days a week. And I, that's off the, the off the court, off like the working court, out, yeah. like we go to the gym and just work out for like two hours in the track and in the, the track and we do the running. But I feel like, yeah, the physical wise, I'm, I'm getting there of course, but I feel like when I was younger, my confidence was a little down with like age wise, but I feel like now when I'm 14, I, I doesn't matter anymore like to me it doesn't matter if they're 22 23 because now i'm just starting to get that confidence where i can be anybody in my mind so it, i mean he's he's practicing with a one of my students is is a tour player and and um he's just starting out on the tour right. and since the pandemic for the last six it's been very help that's been a big help yeah, it's been he's awesome. been he's had to have raised risen his but for me to coach this guy uh, he had to hit with him. <laughs> that was our agreement. Is well, but just well. the physical challenge of being a 14 year old versus a 20 something. I mean, I, it doesn't matter. I think, I mean, it does matter, obviously the confidence and, and your strength and your fitness level, but you're still 14 at the end of the day, your body is still growing and developing at the end of the day, right? You're, you're not a finished product yet. You are a work in progress. And I know for a lot of kids that, there is risk of injury when you, I mean, because it feels different to, to have a ball come off the racket of a Rafael Nadal versus another 14 year old that you might play with. Right. I mean, that ball feels very different and the stress on the shoulder, the elbow, um, just the, the quickness that you have to have to get those balls back because they're moving through the court 
so much more quickly. Um, all of that takes its toll on your body. And so, I mean, it sounds like you guys have a plan. I'm just curious, you know, if you, if you can share like at the end of the day, when you've played against somebody in their twenties, maybe your new player, Heath, who's just starting on the tour, Mm -hmm. what do you do to take care of yourself to make sure that you're fit and ready to go back out the next day? I'd like to address the first thing you said earlier. Uh, Number one, we, we've done a lot of sensor tests and, and studies with, we did a lot of case studies with Paul and, and with other players and, and we hooked them up with all these contraptions and stuff. And to be honest with you, there isn't a huge, there is a difference, but you know, Rafa's RPMs on his ball and his 80 mile per hour ball, you know, he's 35 to 400, 3,500 to 4,000 RPMs at 80 miles per hour. He, Paul is around 3,000, and but, but there's other players. Heat Paul's at 14. Now, when you talk about 14, if you're talking about a 14 kind of beginner, but somebody who's at the high level of the 14s in the in the in the nation, those guys are hitting it. They're they're not far off. You you would be surprised. They're not too far off of. Rafa is one of the. He's a little bit more than everybody else with the RPMs. But yeah. if you take uh, uh, Federer, he's 3,000 RPM to 27 RPMs. It's a heavy ball too. And a 70 to 80 mile per hour ball. These boys at 14 can do that. And so it's not far off. Really what it is, is the overtraining where people get the injuries is not training and getting the small muscles around the joint strong like they mm-hmm. should. And then overtraining too much. So they'll hit five, six hours a day on court and they're, they're beating themselves. And it's, and it's right. not an intentional, purposeful practice. Actually, the, it's, it's just beating them down and really maybe making them worse, to be honest with you. It's better yeah. to have one hour of immense quality of perfection than six hours of mediocrity. And sure. that's what happens consistently that I see among many programs that, that might, you know, people get injured at. And so I think taking care of, like he has very specific routines, pre-match, you know, regeneration, post-match, pre-match, and he takes care of his body. He's also stretching. Like he was talking about, he was really enthralled by Andy Murray taking 45 minutes just to prepare to get ready to play. Yeah. Now he has the hip injury. But, but that's, yeah. that's most people aren't willing to do the little things that lead to the big rewards. And they just want to jump in, and that's how they get injured. So I don't think it's necessarily so much the age gap of 23 versus that. He, Paul, you know, the first time he played that program was 6-3. He lost, but it was 6-3, and, and it was a pretty good match. Mm-hmm. And, and and so my point being is it wasn't the power. Uh, it's really taking care of the body off the court in a professional manner that people need to educate themselves on how to do that would be more of the answer rather than Got worrying it. about playing an older person. Got it. All right. Anything I've neglected to ask y'all? Y'all have been so much fun to talk to. Heath Paul, you did great. Your first so video interview, I, your dad tells yeah, me. Yeah, the first one ever, so yay. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep this one for when you're number one in the world, and I can say I had him first. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of anything other than, yeah. I think, yeah. Well, uh, if, I, if I could say anything to the parents, you know, is to really try to, you know, if you, if I'll say this with how we approach with him, mm-hmm. we try to find, we make our tournaments to us. Look, if he reaches the, the crazy goals he has, so, so be it. But really what we try to do, uh, we try to pick one fun thing 
to do at every place we go. Like we're in a really cool place here and we've already done the cool thing here. And it, wherever tournament we go, there's this this uh, this website called afar.com that it'll tell you the one thing you have to do before leaving this city. Sometimes cool. we do those, but there's other things. So we like restaurants and different things and quirky stuff. But if you can make it more as a parent about making memories and the enjoyment and the relationship, right? If you can make it more about that than about the tournament and the winning. And like every kid, there is no kid that doesn't want to win. And in the kid, if they put the work in, but take the mental handcuffs off and have fun. We spent many years, my first five years on coaching on the tour, it was head down. But when my players started doing well is when we started having fun outside of it. I'm not saying crazy stuff, talking about enjoying life outside of it, making tennis a little bit of it and the fun, the big of it. And wow, do the results. Number one, it's more enjoyable. But number two, you're letting all the stuff that you train them you're taking the mental handcuffs off more likely and it'll come to fruition and it will flow out of them rather than trying to force it out. Love it. Mm-hmm. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy tournament schedule, training mm-hmm. schedule to join us on parenting aces. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, Heath, we'll have to, next time there's a new update to match tennis app, let me know. And we'll have you back on to talk about that. Heath Paul, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching your career. I think you're you're off to a great start. You've got some great people in your corner and wish you all the success. Thank, thank you so, you so much, much Lisa. Us. You're awesome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. To my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, buy a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.